Welcome to On Aeon, a podcast featuring conversations between colleagues on, well, Aeon. This week, we hear from Alistair Lester about Aeon's M&A and transaction solutions. And now, this week's host, Julia Oliveris. Hello, everyone. My name is Julia Olivares. I've been a colleague at Aon for 11 years, serving most recently as the Head of Internal Communication in Australia. I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to share the stories of our firm, our people and our clients through our internal communication channels. With me today is Alistair Lester. Alistair joined Aon in 2017 and currently serves as the global co-CEO of M&A and Transaction Solutions. Prior to this, Alistair was for many years our EMEA CEO of M&A and Transaction Solutions. Today, we're really fortunate to have Alistair bring his unique insight to this topic, which is the recent M&A C-suite study. Thanks for being here today, Alistair. Julia, thanks for having me. It's fantastic. Before we dive straight in, I was hoping to uh, warm things up with a quick question. Um, I know you operate under an ethos of securing investment, enhancing returns. Can you tell me a little bit about your role at Aon, and maybe a bit of a primer on M&A for those who are less familiar with it, so we can understand the, the value and risk of M&A? Yeah, of course, Judy. I'd be delighted to. So um, I, as you said, I've been back at Aon now for four years. Um, uh, I'm a returnee to Aon, so I um, started my career at Aon, uh, and I left after a few years, and, and I realized the error of my ways and returned here some years <laughs> later. Um, uh, so, uh, so I'm a returnee, and I think that probably frames exactly the answer to your question, right? So I've been in and around M&A for many, many years. I was one of the early um, uh, sort of members of the M&A team at Aon in Europe way back in the late 1990s. Um, and actually, when I returned in 2017, I realized that there was a huge opportunity for us to uh, accelerate and evolve the business uh, to reflect the the way that Aon had changed over the years, because actually the M&A business of Aon really hadn't changed as much as the, as the firm had. Um, and, and what we're looking to do, frankly, is to bring everything and anything that the organization, the Aon organization has to bear to help clients who are doing uh, M&A transactions or other form, forms of event-driven transactions. Uh, we're probably best known for insurance due diligence or excuse me, pension due diligence. Um, and in recent years, rep and warranty or warranty and indemnity insurance, uh, rep and warranty insurance as it's known in the US and warranty and indemnity insurance as it's known in, in much of the rest of the world has really grown um, to be a very substantial part of our business. But there is so much more that we have in Aon and therefore that we can uh, bring to bear in M&A transactions um, to help our clients. And look, there's essentially two sides of what we do. One is a due diligence advisory practice. Uh, we have due diligence capabilities across cyber, intellectual property, commercial intellectual property, not legal, um, people, so retirement benefits, talent compensation, et cetera, uh, insurance, of course, uh, and more recently uh, developing an ESG value proposition and a working capital and credit value proposition. So multiple uh, due diligence advisory work streams. And then the other side of the fence, the other side of the coin, if you like, is what we do with bringing, uh, building insurance instruments um, uh, to be deployed into M&A transactions, which either have or, or either or both uh, enhance the returns of a transaction, enhance the value of a transaction, or have some sort of positive impact on the capital structure of the deal that's being put together. So bringing the huge 
um, capital of the insurance industry to bear in a slightly different context to traditionally by deploying insurance instruments in, in an M&A deal. So those are the two sides of the two sides of the business. Uh, and it's it's grown incredibly rapidly over the last three, four years, um, and, although it still has a long way to go. So that's a fantastic overview and a bit of an introduction to people less familiar with M&A. And I, I love that you're a returning uh, colleague. In Australia, we call that a boomerang employee because you've come back to us. Um, right. and, and we're fortunate to have you. Um, I'm hoping I can chat a little bit about the growing complexity that we're seeing in M&A space. Can you explain the factors that have been contributing to this over the past few years? Yeah, of course, Julia. I'll, you know, I'll have a go. So I, I think there's probably three main themes that that we see that we've experienced and, and our clients are, you know, probably experiencing, um, which are globalization. And again, globalization is a theme which is is not an M and A issue. It's a you know, it's a societal issue. It's a political issue. Um, digitalization. You know, the, this rapid digitalization of our economy over the last two decades in the twenty first beginning of the twenty first century. Uh, and then perhaps more recently, ESG. Um, and all of these things, are, uh, you know, are deeply linked together, actually, when you think about it. Globalization, digitalization, and ESG all interplay and inter- interact with each other. But they're also three themes in their own right. Um, the the fascinating thing is with globalization. And, and one thing I should say is is those are issues which we believe are affecting parties, whether they're doing a multi-billion dollar transaction or a single figure million dollar transaction um, for different reasons uh, and in different ways. But it's probably true to say that, that 20 years ago, there were relatively few, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollar transactions that were cross-border multinational and or globalized in some way, be that in the supply chain or be that in the direct activities of the business. And now, Almost every business has got some sort of cross-border exposure, be it customer, being a supplier, uh, be it operations, whatever it might be. And, and that in itself, that, that those globalized activities are increasingly reliant on a digital ecosystem, a digital infrastructure to be able to, to operate. And then, of course, you overlay that, which I'll perhaps talk about a little bit later, you know, with some of the ESG themes and, and, you, and you get to a sense of um, the complexities that you're talking about. What's coming through really clearly to me is how independent those are, but also very much interwoven and the impact at all levels. How have these factors that have contributed to the M&A complexity forced you to rethink the way you view M&A? Uh, yeah. So listen, we, we are, we're very fortunate that we act for, for some fantastic clients and it's the clients who really challenge us to think differently. Um, you know, of course, we can get a sense of what, what's going on around us, but, but actually it's the clients who really help us to, to think differently. But if, if you break those three thing, themes down again, globalization, I think, means that you, you, know, you need to have access as a client. You need to have access to local insights and local capabilities. Um, the days, as I say, of, of doing a transaction which doesn't in some way have some sort of global or international cross-border aspect to it is, is, is you know, in the past and you do need partners and advisors who can help you understand some of the nuances of local insights and local act and, and local issues. I think digitalization is a fascinating one and it's not just in digitalization, but one of the things we've been striving to do, you know, Aon of course is well known for helping clients understand, manage, mitigate and transfer risk in certain situations, including M and A deals. But actually 
We're also becoming increasingly adept at helping clients understand the other side of the coin to risk, which is value. Um, and if you look at some of the work we do in the cyber and the IP space in our digital practice, being able to help clients understand how to uh, generate greater monetized return, greater value out of their intangible assets, out of their intellectual property, how to make sure that they, un they can really generate greater upside and value out of the, the digital performance of the target businesses, the businesses they're buying, as well as, of course, identifying and managing and mitigate the risk of, of, of that business and of the transaction is a, has been a real shift for us. And look, and I think if you look at ESG, the, that for me is real evidence of there is a fundamental shift and that there already has been. The, the digitalization has, has been driving a fundamental shift, but there has been a fundamental shift in the way that companies are being valued. Um, whether that's in the public market context or in a private M&A market context, there, there really is a fundamental shift. And if companies are being valued differently, then frankly, they're being financed differently. And the way that finance is being raised to enable companies to buy businesses is already changing, but will continue to change even further because of some of the shifts I've just been talking about. I love the positioning of it as risk being one side of the coin, value being the other. And I, I know you and the team have worked really hard on the recent M&A C-suite study, which has been a fantastic uh, document and really, really valuable for our clients. Can you talk through some of the key takeaways from the study? Yeah, of course, Julia. And, and actually, probably the, the, out of the blocks, I'd say that actually the headline of, of the press release that we put out for the, for the study probably captures one of the big messages really well, which was, we believe ESG, if it isn't already, will become as important, ESG due diligence will become as important as financial due diligence in the very near future. You know, look, financial due diligence has always been the bedrock of any analysis you do about a company you're going to buy or sell. It tells you about the financial performance. It gives you the, the data to enable you to, to drive evaluation, you know, methodology and evaluation model. And we think ESG is going to get to a similar place, right? It's, it's, it's moving so fast. Um, there is a lot of work to do because ESG is so – the definition of ESG is, can be so broad um, and the interpretations of what it means for different situations can be really broad as well. Um, but we certainly think that ESG is a, is a leading priority uh, piece of work that needs to be really bespoke to individual circumstances is going to become absolutely critical in future years. It's, it's no longer a box-ticking exercise. In fact – um, it's probably moved faster through being through being something that people didn't have to consider in the context of an M&A deal to something that became relevant, but perhaps a box ticking exercise to something that, as I've said, is probably one of the one of the, if not the most important aspect of due diligence faster than any other um, uh, sort of development in the due diligence and the, and, and the pre-deal insights uh, that, that, that I've seen in my 25 years um, in the M&A space. So I think that's one, one thing. I think the second thing is, as I've already touched on, is this definitional issue. There's such a broad definition of what ESG is um, and, and what it includes, but deliberately that as a result, people have really got to spend time before they do deals understanding what, from an ESG perspective, what is relevant to them and to the target company in any given specific situa situation and really contextualize the issues that are relevant as they go into a deal. And I think probably the last point I'd make is around um, 
I've already referenced this point about intangible assets and how there's going to be a change in how businesses are valued and and therefore financed. Um, and I think the the digitalization journey of the last few years has really driven a huge explosion in in in, in intellectual property in business. And you know, as a, as a global reference point, over eighty percent of the S and P five hundred, the value of the S and P five hundred is now made up by companies with intangible assets, compared to you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it being 90% companies based on tangible assets. And that really just is, is reflective of what's going on in the whole economy. Um, and it's really important to understand, again, the commercial opportunities that go with digitalization. How do we help our clients think about upsides um, through digital strategies? And critically, how can we potentially help um, structure new instruments um, and new solutions which help clients to generate um, more value out of things which previously have been, uh, have been viewed as being um, difficult to extract value from. And intellectual property is a, and patents, for example, is a really good example of that. You know, patents have traditionally been seen as downside legal protection against someone infringing and, and or stealing your intellectual property. Now they can be really turned around the other way and used as collateral in financing to unlock um, means of financing your business and financing M&A in the way that they, they never could be even two, three, four years ago. And, and, and that's just at the beginning of that journey. So look, a whole load of things in there, but ESG is an overwhelming theme and how that's going to change M&A was a really strong theme that came through in our report. And then this whole idea of digitalization and how you know every transaction, we had a client, I think, say every transaction is now a, a, a digital transaction, even even if it's perceived to be a really you know old industry business, that old industry business is essentially reliant on a digital infrastructure to be able to operate and trade and transact. And I think that's a huge shift in the last five to ten years. We're living in a very different world now than we were even two years ago for many many reasons. And Alice, you talked about COVID accelerating digitalization, but what other impacts has COVID had on the deal landscape? Well, so Julia, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been a it's been an extraordinary eighteen months, isn't it? And and um, I think that's one of the things that, and again, it's all linked. So COVID, as we we think, clients seem to think has probably accelerated certain things by ten years, right? And so as a result, you've got clients who are looking to make sure that they are being part of this accelerated landscape. You know, a huge, I mean, a huge boom in tech M and A. Huge increase in valuations of certain of certain tech driven and digital driven assets, um, and that's been a a, a fairly obvious um, sort of uh, consequence of everything we've been through for the last eighteen months. I think the other interesting thing was was just really activity. So it was fascinating how the breaks came on in terms of deal activity and, and clients looking to do M and A deals. You know, it's certainly in Europe in Q two and, and early Q three twenty twenty. And it really felt a little bit like, um, for those old enough like me to be around then, like the, the global financial crisis, right? It, you know, it, it felt similar to that, albeit, you know, clearly it was a different, different challenge that we had to deal with. Um, but deal flow completely fell off a cliff because everyone was busy focusing on the businesses they owned, making sure they understood the impact of the situation on, on, on what they already owned rather than looking to you know, to, to, to go through M&A processes. And then as we got into the second half of Q3 2020, and ever since, frankly, 
it has been an incredible, um, uh, incredibly busy period. And why? Well, look, uh, we all, the, the world proved it could be resilient in, in the context of COVID economically, not without its challenges, but in the context of COVID. Um, the world, I think, has an enormous amount of dry powder in, in terms of equity that needs to be put to work. There's a huge amount of capital looking for returns and yield. Corporate balance sheets have more cash on them than they've ever had before. And, and one of the things that needs to be done with corporate, balance, with corporate cash is you either give it back to your shareholders or you have to spend it on M&A. I mean, that's basically the, the, the two choices. So, look, COVID, I think, has just really accelerated a whole load of things that were happening anyway and really intensified it. I would say we've seen a mild slowdown in the last, but only mild in the last, you know, four to six weeks. But I think that's possibly just because there was, you know, a significant amount of indigestion in the system. The system's been running so hot for such a long time. I think it had to take a pause at some point. But then, you know, just in the last week or two, we're seeing that sort of start to, to really pick up again. So where will it end? We don't know. Um, possibly one of the big questions around that is how will the, you know, what will the impact be of government funding getting eased in various ways? But, you know, we've, we've been living in a period of significant government intervention in the financing markets for over a decade since the global financial crisis. So however that works is going to have to be done in a very sensible way over a reasonably long period of time. So we'll have to see the impact in due course. But right now, there's a huge, it continues to be huge volumes in the M&A market. And, and sectorally, um, you know, TMT tech is, is obviously huge. Um, and, and, and another of others that, you know, might be a little bit surprising. I want to know about the ones that are a little bit surprising. <laughs> I thought you might say. <laughs> so look, so, um, so one of the ones we've seen in, in Europe has been food, food and beverage, right? And we've seen a real uh, acceleration of, of food and beverage transactions over the last, over the last few months. Um, you know, if you try to put your finger on it, there's, there's probably a range of reasons. But one of the reasons we think is actually being, again, it comes back to ESG, this sort of underlying shift in, in, in the, the way that people eat, how people think about their diets, you know, the shift away from or an increasing shift away from an overtly meat-based diet to, to more plant-based. You know, I think that's driving, that's driving some M&A because anytime there's a, there's, there's a shift in societal behavior or, 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 you know, or trends, then that drives M&A, right? Because people are either trying to get ahead of it or they're trying to play catch up with it. Um, so I think food and beverage has been one. I think the other one we've seen a little, lot of activity in, and we'll see more is in life sciences. I think the, the, um, uh, you know, the work that the global life sciences and pharma industry has done to help us all manage our way through COVID, I think has really given a, you know, pardon the pun, a shot in the arm for the, for that industry. Right. And it's, it's really, it's re uh, enforced global confidence in, in that as an industry, our ability to innovate at scale and, 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 you know, develop new solutions for, for global health problems. And I think that in turn will now drive a, you know, a further, a further period of, of M&A in, in the life sciences space. Alistair, I can't thank you enough. This has been such a fascinating session from an overview of M&A to understanding how truly integrated it is with what's happening globally, politically, socially, the sort of M&A is everywhere. Um, I'm hoping before we let you go, I can squeeze in one final question and this is a little bit more personal, just to help our listeners learn a little bit more about you. But I'd love to know what, what's next for you at Aon. Uh, Julia, um, 
I, you know, listen, I, we've just, I've just been asked to take on this, this global role, which is fantastic. Uh, co-leading global M&A with, with Gary Blitz out of the US. Um, and I think the exciting thing for us is that Aeon's changed so much over, over the last few years. Um, and as I said, right up front, the M&A business has been changing, but perhaps not changed as much as the rest of the firm. Uh, and if this organization wants to be really, truly known, which we do as a leading global professional services firm, then we need to have a global M&A value proposition to help our clients, um, which is truly market leading in our chosen areas um, and which truly needs to be consistently delivered on a global basis. And look, I'll be honest enough to say right now, I think if you asked our colleagues in Australia or you know, Japan or Latin America or Germany or the US, what we do in M&A to help our clients, you'd get a range of different answers. And certainly if you asked our clients the question, you'd get a range of different answers. And we want to, you know, move very fast to make sure that the, the range of answers is smaller and, and the breadth of our value proposition is really, truly understood. And the value that we can bring to help clients doing M&A is, is really appreciated on a global basis. And I think, um, we're on a journey and we've got a long way to go, but we're excited about where we want to get to. This has been a conversation on Aon and important topics in M&A. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this week's episode, tune in in two weeks for a discussion of Aon's work furthering gender equity. To learn more about Aon, its colleagues, solutions, and news, check out our show notes and visit our website at aon.com.